As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show's Weekend Review. On this episode, we're looking back on the Premier League semi-depleted slate of games on Boxing Day, where Man City kept Leicester at bay as Raheem Sterling made it child's play, where Romelu Lukaku came back into the fray as Chelsea ruined Aston Villa's post-Christmas soiree, where Crystal Palace were completely outplayed as Patrick Vieira was forced to keep away, and where Norwich were slain and guided on their way to the Championship with another poor display my name is ryan bailey joining me on this intrepid podcast journey is a man who was brought who was who was bought three different types of whiskey over the holidays i am led to believe <laughs> he loves spirits but he's not ghosting us today taylor rockwell hello I, I am not and i am here without a hangover i have not yet broken into any of those bottles but yes uh three maybe even four whiskey bottles by the end of the holiday a, a good haul overall for me and a great introduction from you ryan i always have to wonder do you have to chop and change? Like, do you end up using a rhyme in a different location than it was originally written? Do you have to kind of adjust on the fly? Or once it's written, is it written? You're, you're, by, by asking if I'm chopping and changing, you're, you're assuming I'm doing too much work there, Taylor, I think. <laughs> you're kind. You're kind go. to say so. There we go. Well, it was a lovely introduction. It's lovely to talk to you both. Uh, happy, happy holidays and a premature Happy New Year. And to you too, Taylor Walker, joining us today, a man who loves Boxing Day soccer more than any other type of soccer, and he's also had at least one munchy box in the last few days. Please welcome the incredibly contented Graham Rutherford. <laughs> Hello, Ryan Bailey. I wish that were a lie about the munchy box, but it's, uh, it's absolutely true. We had a traditional munchy box on, uh, on Christmas Eve. Uh, my arteries were complaining about that, but then we also had a lovely Christmas dinner on uh, Christmas Day, funnily enough, and... Uh, mm. Had some family round, a few drinks, and we dropped the turkey right in the cornballer for that uh, deep fried goodness. So, <laughs> soy loco for lo cornballer. Yeah, <laughs> no touching. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't have one. I feel like maybe uh, health and safety in the UK would uh, outlaw outlaw them, but uh, yeah, it's an ambition to own a own a cornballer. <laughs> 
Well, uh, gents, in the uh, spirit of Boxing Day, in which we're there, were many absent key players. No Joe Lowry today. Just the three of us. We can make it if we try. I think we'll get along just fine. We're talking about all the Boxing Day games from the Premier League and perhaps beyond. Before we get there, I'm going to come back to you, Taylor. Um, you mentioned getting four different types of the same gift. Are you an easy mm-hmm. person to buy for at this time of year? I think so. I think I am. I, uh, yeah, I think it's either... Whiskey or soccer, those tend to be like the the two things. SNL has the joke about how at a certain point, every mom just has like the animal that becomes their identifier. And then everyone just buys them like, like a chicken, you're a chicken now. So they get chicken hand towels and chicken soaps. And I feel like it's either soccer or bourbon are are my two things that people sort of gravitate towards or records. I think those are my three. Much better than chicken soap, I would uh, suggest. Yeah, I would say so. so. I would say so. He's done okay. (laughs) Graham, (laughs) um, was Santa good to you? He was indeed. I mean, I I also feel like I am quite easy to buy for. Just anything uh, vaguely football related <laughs> is good. So yeah, that was pretty much uh, what I got. But like football photography books, I, I like like football coffee table books. I got I think three of those. Um, oh. So yeah, th- those are always a hit with me. What are the, what but, are those like? What do those look like? Are they just like? Big with big pictures. Like, what do you go for when you're going for football? So I got one. It was like the hundred best stadiums in the UK. I think it was one of them, which is like pictures of stadiums. I then got one football from the eighties, and then the other one. What did I get? Oh, it was a Scottish football one. I got another Scottish football one. So yeah, how many? How many mullets in the eighties football? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had the chance to properly look through that one yet, but yeah, I think at least one on each page is a safe bet. Wonderful, wonderful ratio of mullet to page. I like that. Uh, one of my friends has got a really cool um, Italian coffee table book of every back page of Gazetta, um, you know, oh, the newspaper, cool. and like going back years and years and years. It's very, very cool indeed. Yes, um, Graham. Before we get down to Boxing Day, we should say that um, if you want further details on Boxing Day, listener, and what exactly it is, you should listen to our Soccer One Hundred and One episode, our most recent one on the feed. But Jan- uh, Graham, a quick preview on what Boxing Day is, and you are a big lover of it why is it important to you i am i I think this is the the best day in in the football calendar in the uk so boxing day um going back way back to its uh to its origins was was a day when um generally there's a theme of wealthier people giving gifts to less well-off people and boxing up gifts that's kind of where the term they think comes from but in sporting terms it's it's a day when there is traditionally full cards of fixtures in every single division across the united kingdom and it's a day when um friends and family get together and maybe people who don't get to go to games every single week um, which I would I would count myself among that contingent. Um, mm-hmm. I don't get to go every single week, but obviously people have more time off at this time of year, and so crowds are tend to be bigger, and um, there's just a kind of festive air um, around football stadiums at this time of year. So yes, it, it, there's something special about football matches um, on Boxing Day, in my opinion. Oh, there is indeed, Graham. Well, um, there's usually a festive air around this time. There's a little bit too much Omicron in the air, unfortunately, for the Premier League this time around. A bit of COVID chaos affecting the Boxing Day slate. Uh, Three postponed Premier League games we had, and um, managers Patrick Vieira and Steven Gerrard missing from their respective games, which their teams both lost, incidentally. At the time of recording, Leeds against, I think it's Villa and Arsenal against Wolves. They're already cancelled for a little later in the week as well. Uh, Quite a terrifying stat from the 
EFL, the divisions below the Premier League, 24 of 33 EFL games, that's a Championship, League One and League Two, did not go ahead. That's a large proportion. Uh, but all Scottish Premier League, uh, Premiership, sorry, Graham, games went ahead. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is correct, but unfortunately, we are we don't have crowds um, at the moment, so it wasn't it wasn't the usual uh, Boxing Day spectacle that you that you normally have. But yes, we did have all six games go ahead. Dundee requested a, a postponement of their match. Um, that that re- uh, request was rejected by the SPFL, despite the fact that Dundee had to name their their forty year old assistant manager on the bench who hasn't played for five years and who's actually Sterling <laughs> Albion's former manager. So that was very strange for me, Dave Mackay. Um he was named as a substitute and a seventeen year seventeen year old goalkeeper was also named as an outfield player. Uh, it may not come as a surprise that uh, Dundee did not make any subs in that <laughs> game. <laughs> the eleven that they started with played the full match. Well, this stretching of resources you mentioned there, Graham, uh, raises an interesting point around the game cancellations or postponements, I should say, that have been happening. Uh, my team personally, AFC Wimbledon, mention of AFC Wimbledon, thank you very much. Um, I, I wasn't able to go to the Boxing Day game because it was postponed. It was a game against Charlton uh, and my whole family were going to go, as you're saying, Graham, people don't normally go uh, to every game, always kind of come and, uh, and go to the Boxing Day game. So we didn't get that family experience, unfortunately. But um, AFC Wimbledon, quite uniquely, and I think they're the only team who've done this, actually wrote a letter to the EFL, the English Football League, um, asking teams to be held to account for postponing matches for COVID reasons. Because it seems there's no... It doesn't seem terribly clear the threshold for which a game can be postponed and different teams asking um, for postponements for different reasons. But Wimbledon, having had their last two home games cancelled, that's that's more expensive for the home team, remember, than it is for the away team. The away team, who have both, both of whom requested to cancel their games against Wimbledon, they're not losing as much by cancelling an away trip at this time. But Wimbledon, in this letter, kind of said that they felt, the, you know, it's affecting teams with small budgets and, and small squads, both of which Wimbledon have. Uh, and still making all the effort to fulfil these fixtures and having good protocols. And the quote from the letter says, this is not by luck that Wimbledon have been able to do, or uh, still been able to schedule games. This is down to hard work and spending resources our club ultimately doesn't have at its disposal. Uh, That includes paying for its own testing as well. So, Graham, it's interesting how this dynamic is affecting the game, particularly lower down the pyramid where uh, cancelled games can have commercial implications and it's going to be tricky when the games pile up when teams like your Wimbledons uh, have smaller squads and it's going to be a little difficult when this all rears its head. Yeah, I think the biggest frustration is the lack of transparency over what the what the rules are the Premier League seems to the Premier League in particular seems to be applying different rules to different teams and in, in different cases um the night before on Christmas day i think there was a report that the the Spurs Palace game had been called off after mm. a request from Palace to get the, the match postponed and then on boxing day morning it emerged that it, maybe it wasn't postponed and then of course that match actually went ahead and it does seem like there is an inconsistency across the board this is also the case i assume in the efl and, and it certainly has been the case in scotland too but the premier league obviously has the most eyes on it the biggest clubs the biggest games um the biggest tv contracts and and so it really feels like they should probably have some uh some clear rules in place that that makes it a case of black and white you know if you have a certain number of players who have tested positive for covid and that means you've only got this number of players available for a match, then you can't play the game or you can play the game. It feels like that should, it really should be in place by now already, but mm. that if uh, that should probably be fast-tracked in my opinion. 
Definitely so. More transparency and yeah, more hard and fast rules about the, the terms upon which a game can be postponed, I think, is appropriate. But I suppose we can argue that these clubs, are oh, the leagues are certainly trying to muddle through and do what they can to actually put fixtures on at this point. And that's a, that's a consequence of that. But um, we did get some games on Boxing Day, certainly some Premier League ones. Uh, it seemed like the ones we got, Taylor, they were gunning for that famous Boxing Day of 1963 that we mentioned on Soccer 101 mm-hmm. on that day, which is always referred to every single year without fail. There were 66 goals from 10 matches. We had slightly fewer. I've, I've counted up 26 goals from six matches, an average of 4.3 per game. Uh, why don't we start with the one with the most goals? Manchester City 6, Leicester 3. Uh, Man City 4 and up at halftime in this one. Uh, but a bit of a fight back from Leicester. Taylor, I made the cardinal error, the cardinal sin in this game of flicking between two games on like our main TV. Started off with the Spurs game on and then realised, uh, maybe there's some more action. Flick to Man City. And basically did that thing where you miss every important <laughs> oh, moment yeah. and end up watching no goals at all, Taylor. If it helps, I think probably by the end you were as confused as everyone interviewed in the post-match sort of coverage because no one seemed too upset by the result. No one seemed particularly pleased by it either. And it did feel like everybody was kind of confused by the way this game played out because, what, it's 4-0 fairly quickly, then it's 4-3, to Leicester pulls some back. Leicester at various points could have pulled even more back, but then it's City 6-3 to in the end. It's a really confusing game and I think maybe shows what happens when you go up 4-0 is that maybe you get a little bit slack and you leave yourself exposed to very rapid counterattacks. And then you end up being Man City and scoring a bunch more goals. But I'm with you, Ryan, that if you start jumping around, especially with some of these games in the sort of erratic nature and the way some of these squads are being assembled kind of haphazardly, you are going to miss some goals. But maybe if you keep flicking, you'll end up getting more goals because we did have plenty uh, this weekend. We did, yeah. And I, I specifically remember it being 4-0 up at halftime. It's like, right, this game's done. Let's switch well, over. Yep. Oh, wait, it's 4-3. Oh, we should... Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, never mind. Uh, but Man City, certainly, Graham, are on a bit of a roll. 17 goals in their past three games. Uh, 50 goals this season in 19 games. They're halfway through the season, exactly. Uh, many of which without an actual recognised forward on the field, Graham, which is quite impressive. Um, what are we making of this Man City side, Graham? Are, do they still bore you because they're so amazing? Uh, a little bit, yeah, <laughs> slightly. I I always struggle. I mean, this match there there were a, a, a few uh, talking points. Thankfully, um, I was working yesterday, so I I did actually write a Manchester City piece on the back of this game. But yes, generally they are um, so so good and so well drilled that I, I do sometimes find them a little bit boring. But in general, I thought this was. Um, Taylor, you said a confusing game. I've got in my notes, this was a strange performance by Manchester yeah. City. Um, all season long, the theme with them has been sort of playing well but not scoring the goals that they should be scoring and then in the last two games um this match and then against Newcastle it's been maybe not playing that well but scoring loads of goals um and obviously they go 4-0 up in this match at that point you think oh this is another routine Manchester City um performance but then the changes that Leicester made for the start of the second half sort of shifted the dynamic of the match and then some of the the weaknesses in the City team and the in particular with two players that they were missing Rodri and, and Kyle Walker with them uh, being, not being in the team they were kind of exposed a little bit and and the Rodri absence in particular this was this was one thing I, I kept my eye on in this match when I watched it back you know Rodri's been so crucial to City this season uh, and I do think we saw in this match that they are a weaker team when he's not involved as I say that was particularly the case at the at the start of the second half when Leicester did a lot more on the counter-attack and with just Fernandinho there to to cover a lot of ground it felt like City were 
quite easily exposed on the break, especially when Leicester had someone like uh, James Madison, who was very good at beating the mid-block with a bit of skill or a dribble. We saw that for a couple of the goals. And so when that happened, City were, were just kind of exposed. I also thought Kyle Walker as well, um, as I say, I mentioned him earlier, he is another player who helps them in those situations. And I think people underestimate just how important he is to the way City mop up opposition chances. He might, he might actually be, I know this maybe is a bold statement, but I think he may actually be the best in the whole of European football at tracking back to intervene on you know opposition counterattacks. And so they missed him. They missed him here as a reactive uh, force, and they missed Rodri as as a, a preemptive force to kind of stop those counterattacks from happening in the first place. So, I know City have lots of depth, particularly in the attacking third, when they have about six top class options for three positions. But this performance showed to me that they're still dependent on two or three players to underpin everything. And when mm. one of one or two of those players are missing, things can get a little bit loose, and that's what happened in this match. I do wonder if they defend the same way, if they play the same way, if it's only one nil for some of the way for some of the goals that Leicester get on the con- on the counter. There are definitely moments that City defenders sort of pull out of, and I think they're doing that because we're four nil up. I don't need to pick up a card here. I don't need to risk injury or potentially even a red card if I'm really late to this tackle. And so, I think you don't see them kind of go in fully to win the ball or fully to just knock the man off, get that professional foul, pick up that yellow card. And maybe that goes some way towards explaining how Leicester were able to sort of bypass them so effectively. But I think, Graham, you're correct that also missing some of those key performers and those maybe even just those leadership figures like Kyle Walker, I think, is going to turn and yell at some folks if they're not tracking back, if they're not doing the work that they need to. And it, and it just felt like a city team that were fairly not bothered when Leicester made it four to three and, and felt like maybe Leicester were kind of pulling their way back in. And that's exemplified to me by the fact that they then just go out and get two more goals and finish comfortably ahead. And so, I, I again, I end up being confused by this one because I can't tell if it's City just sort of being like, all right, we don't need to kind of overexert ourselves and get injured or get cards. But simultaneously, it might also be City having some deficiencies. Well, if you look at the most important players in the Guardiola system, it's probably defensive midfield and fullbacks, mm-hmm. right? Or the, certainly the key mm-hmm. positions. So when you've got key missing players there I can understand why things aren't quite at a hundred percent but certainly not an issue in terms of attaining three points as we've established here gents I'll tell you what Taylor I played a little game watching the bits of this game when I when I wasn't switching over to Spurs watching whenever get City got possession back where was Kevin De Bruyne on the field ostensibly like a false nine but he was everywhere and obviously we know that Man City very fluid up front but I'd love to see his stats on what he covered here because he was all over the shop and it was really exciting to see him play this one it's always interesting to see him play it's always exciting to see him play and it's always exciting for me to see how the team is built or any team is built around having that player who kind of moves wherever they want to and how everyone accommodates that because you can't just have Kevin De Bruyne drift into one area and then leave his side completely open for counter or like to basically not have that passing option where he uh, had previously been. So to see how City do such a good job of moving players and players moving off the ball to kind of make sure that areas of the pitch are locked down, they still have numbers there, but they still have support for Kevin De Bruyne or whoever it might be who's drifting. I think that's such an important part of a Guardiola team that is simultaneously really difficult to track when it comes to stats or any sort of like 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 quantifiable information. I'm sure there are data heads who who can do that for me, but mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting how the team sort of shifts to accommodate the flexibility in the attack. 
Graham, your thoughts on Mr. De Bruyne here, who sort of, he's he's often not flavoured them up with City, which speaks to the wealth of um, availability mm-hmm. of quality players. Yeah, I, I think he's been fantastic since he's he's come back from injury, and and maybe this is just me, um, but it it seems like he's being pushed forward slightly more since he's come back from injury. I, I know he's never been a defensive midfielder; he has always carried a goal threat, and certainly a. Uh, you know he's how, he's always had a final product in him, but it just it just seems to me that he is making more of an effort to get into the box as often as possible. We saw that for the first goal when he's uh, he's in the box, he has the time to, to to bring the ball down and and turn and get the shot away. And I, I just wonder if Guardiola has looked at how effective the ploy of pushing uh, Gundogan up into a more attacking position was last season in particular and is, is just kind of testing how effective De Bruyne could could uh, could be if, if he does something something similar I do think it's quite subtle I'm not saying he's playing a completely different position but I, I would like to see stats on on whether he is making more um, kind of late runs into the box or making more touches in the opposition box because just anecdotally having watched him since he's come back from injury it certainly seems to me like like he is Indeed. Why don't we have a quick note about Leicester as well, Graham? Um, a few players missing here, and Jamie Vardy deemed surplus the requirements uh, on the bench mm-hmm. in this one. What did you make of them? I mean, it seems to me like they're very strong on the counter, um, but just a little bit sloppy at the back. And the thing I noticed about them is they just didn't seem interested in the ball at all when it came towards them in their own box. There were moments <laughs> where Kevin De Bruyne, it's a cliche to say, you know, City players want the ball more, but there were moments where you think there, there was no... They they were very passive, the, the Leicester in, yeah. in defence, I'd say. Yeah, and, and that first goal that I just mentioned there was the, the prime example of that, where De Bruyne is allowed to control a, a fairly high ball in the box. He then gets it down, he then turns, and then gets the shot away all from about, what, 12 yards out? Right. While there's three defenders in front of him. I think that's maybe a symptom of unfamiliarity in that defence, where nobody really knows who's to go out to him. They're all kind of keeping their line and uh, just no one really takes responsibility. And I think that's the first thing to mention about this Leicester performance because it's only fair to mention that they had so many injuries, particularly in the defence. And when you see that back four of Albrighton, Amarty, Vestergaard and Thomas, from the start, you kind of uh, knew this was going to be a difficult game for them, <laughs> away to the, the runaway leaders at the top of the Premier League table. Yeah. However, I do also have issues with the way that Rodgers even with all those injuries and all those players that were missing how he set up his his uh, his team and, and the way Leicester played the first 20 minutes of the second half on the counter-attack and the damage that they did in those 20 minutes to City just added to my belief that that Rodgers um, he could have he as I say he could have set the team up a little bit better and 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 from the start and this this has always been my problem with Rodgers going back to when he was at Celtic and maybe even with Liverpool was his teams play some fantastic stuff and he's obviously had success over the course of his career but when Celtic and I'm using Celtic here as a, as a case study because I watched them a lot under Rodgers but when he when he had to be a little bit more pragmatic he he couldn't do it uh Rodgers always wanted his teams to impose themselves on the opposition and that resulted in some pretty heavy defeats away to teams like in the Champions League when they were playing Barcelona and PSG and obviously they were likely never going to get a result but they lost like 6-0 and 7-0 in those games when Celtic could have been a little bit more pragmatic, a little bit more conservative and played on the counter-attack. And I just think in the, in the circumstances that Leicester found themselves in here, doing that from the start would have been the sensible thing to do. And obviously for the start of the second half, he shifts into that back, four, uh, back five, sorry, I should say, and they play on the counter-attack. And 
they they did a good job of denying Manchester City space. They got closer to them. That opened up space on the break. And obviously, we have the benefit of hindsight. But I, I promise you, from the start, from when I saw that team, it seemed like a very ambitious uh, set up for Leicester given how many players they had out missing and given the standard of the opposition and when you couple that with their, their weakness from set pieces which is also something that Rodgers has struggled with throughout his career it just adds to the sense that I've got that he has a bit of a ceiling on his ability as a manager and if he was able to adapt that little bit more he could maybe take the next step and I do wonder how this season pans out for him at Leicester because if Leicester are not pushing into that top six where they kind of see themselves and at the moment they're a long way from that then Leicester are a ruthless club you know they, they got rid of Ranieri a few months after they won the Premier League title mm. is it possible that Rodgers could lose his job I don't think it's completely out of the question what do you think Taylor Rodgers uh, his stock is a little lower at the moment I, I, I personally feel like he is in the exact right place at Leicester and and maybe that is part of Graham's point is that he's in the right place because at maybe a club like Liverpool he gets found out or there's just more issues that aren't okay when you're playing when you really are trying to challenge for that top four challenging for the title whereas at Leicester maybe the expectations slightly diminished and therefore he is given a little bit more flexibility or a little bit more cover but I share Graham's concerns because I don't think the initial lineup made sense I think it was smart to bring Castagna and switch to that back five. But I think the set pieces one is the one that I was sort of really surprised by. Uh, Watching match of the day, they pointed out, I think Leicester have conceded the most goals off of set pieces this season, 12 goals off set pieces. But in this game, they do this hybrid zone system that I do not think ever really works, where they're, they're man marking, but then they still have players in a zone, but it ends up leaving this big gap between the six yard box and the penalty spot. And it leaves you sort of reacting to things. The idea with zone is that you are attacking your space. You are covering your zone. If the ball gets into that space, you attack it, you get it clear. But if you're being reactionary in that hybrid zone, it leaves lots of gaps, especially at that back post. And that's basically what City aimed for every time. They just lumped it to the back post and headed it back across or headed it back on frame. And they get at least two goals off of corners in this game, and they get other opportunities as well. And to see Leicester not adapt to that and not just put somebody in that space and have them just stand there and head it away. I, I, I take Graham's point that maybe a a more top tier, a higher caliber manager, that sounds really harsh to say about Brendan Rodgers, but I think like Pep Guardiola probably figures that out and puts somebody there. I think Carlo Ancelotti mm-hmm. figures that out and puts somebody there. I think Brendan Rodgers, admittedly due to injuries, he's missing what three of his first choice defense. I think there is an understandable thing about him trying to figure other areas out and maybe not having time to deal with the set pieces. But still, there are those lingering concerns that I do think keep him from getting that next tier job in England. Maybe elsewhere, maybe abroad, he gets an opportunity. But for right now, I don't see him getting sacked, but I also don't see him moving on to a larger club anytime soon. Well, Man City remain top of the Premier League. Six points clear. Liverpool had their game against Leeds United on Boxing Day postponed. Leicester in 10th place. Uh, To be fair, though, they've played 17 games. And if they win those two in hand, they're up in that top six area that we spoke about. So uh, maybe some more to to be seen from Leicester this season. Uh, We're going to take a quick... Yes, Taylor. Before we take that quick break, I just realized one thing I wanted to note uh, that I think is important for me, at least, is seeing Rogers in the post-match interview where he was indignant about the first penalty and how it should have been given. And that changes the entire game. And it's like, man, you were 4-0 down. Like, <laughs> I know that you have to do the manager thing of you blame the officials so you don't blame your players. But that felt... I think I previously said that nobody seemed particularly thrilled, but nobody seemed particularly angry about the result. 
Brandon Rogers was maybe the exception, and that felt very out of line with the way the rest of the game went. I think he could probably point that finger at himself for some of his decisions. And I think that's why I'm more negative is because if he had just come out and said, not our day, we had a lot of injuries, we did our best to handle it, but Man City are just a comprehensively good team, you know, uh, we go again. I think I would be fine with that. <laughs> but to come out and say, if, if that penalty hadn't happened, we would have only been 3-0 down and that would have made the difference. It, it felt slightly disingenuous to me. I'm not sure Brendan Rodgers is a point the finger at oneself kind of guy, is he? <laughs> Perhaps not. Perhaps not. Yes, it might be wishful thinking on the on your part there for for, for Mr. Rogers, but uh, we shall see uh, as the season unfolds. Yeah, that was Man City against Leicester. We'll be talking Aston Villa, Chelsea after these short messages. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are talking Aston Villa 1, Chelsea 3, 2 Jorginho penalties. Fancy that. And Romelu Lukaku getting back on the score sheet in this one. Uh, I suppose the big talking point, Graham, was Romelu Lukaku in this game, who had a pretty big impact from the bench. Um, what? what a, I've seen a lot of praise for him, and he deserves it. He mm-hmm. had a very, very good performance here. But is it a bit hot takey to suggest he's back? 100%. This is amazing. This is a guy who had one goal in his 13 games previously. Yeah. Um, I think that was the crazy Zenit Champions League game as well. No league goal since September. Is it a bit too much to say, you know, we, 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 we tend to do this as soccer fans. Like someone has a good game and it's like, oh, the tide has turned. They're amazing again. Yeah. Should we exercise caution here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and Sky went big on the whole Chelsea are back in the title race thing that Lukaku is, is, is uh, fit again and firing again. And as you say, completely forgetting that before his injury, he wasn't actually in the best of form. And Thomas Tuchel had admitted publicly that Chelsea hadn't really adapted to his game and he hadn't adapted to their game. And there were definitely teething problems there before he picked up his his injury. However, what I would say is... This was, to me, proof and evidence that despite all the teething problems, despite the fact that Lukaku isn't fully integrated into this team yet, Chelsea are a better team with Lukaku as the as the centre forward. And the difference in the way Chelsea played in these two halves, with and without Lukaku, was incredible. And it's incredible that one player can make such a difference, not just in their position, but all over the pitch in terms of the balance of the team. And as I say, that one player was Romelu Lukaku. And I think it's fair to say that he... Uh, he did grab grab the headlines from this match uh, after being introduced at half time. Obviously, he he scores. Uh, he doesn't score the equaliser. He scores the the goal to put Chelsea ahead. Is that correct? I've lost track yeah, of which right. order the goals were in. Um, <laughs> and then he wins the the penalty for the the third goal late on as well. In the first half, looking at how Chelsea played without him, it was more of the same from Chelsea. All the problems that we've seen 
from them as they've fallen off the pace at the top of the Premier League table. They they were there. Kante was uh, was back from injury for this one, but it was clear that he wasn't quite fit, and uh, and that was underlined underlined how by he uh, him going off in the in, in the second half with an aggravation of that injury. That's going to be a bit of a problem for for Chelsea over the next few weeks. They may have rushed him back a little bit, um, and as I've said. On the pod before, Chelsea under Tuchel used to be so good at containing runners and Kante was a was a big part of that and they just haven't been able to do that for the last month or so and they weren't able to do it in the first half here either. Mm. Um, Ollie Watkins in particular had a, a lot of freedom to go, get down the, the left side and that's obviously where the, the opening goal comes from when Chelsea give... Um, it's not cash, it's target on the left side, the left fullback. They just give him far too much time to get across into the middle. Obviously, it picks up a, a fortuitous, a fortuitous, can't say that word, deflection, um, and go, got, um, goes up over Mendy. But um, yeah, even when Chelsea did make it through the press, that Villa were they, were, they were pressing quite high up in them. There was just a lack of creativity. And I was looking through the stats and Mount, Mount failed to create a single big chance in the first half. Christian Pulisic, who played this match or started this match, I should should say, as the centre forward in the first half, he had one touch in the final third in the first forty five minutes. That's not I'm not that's not even the penalty box. That's in the final third. He had one touch in the first forty five minutes, which tells you a lot about how difficult he found it to get into the game. And then Lukaku came on at halftime, and uh, they had an option to get in behind. They had someone to get on the end of crosses. Um, if you create the space for Lukaku, I'm not sure there's anyone more devastating in European football at bursting into the box with the ball at his feet like he did for the, the penalty for the third goal. Yeah, and so yes, there are. It does still feel like Lukaku is is a bit of a misfit for this team. But I looked at. I also looked at how when Lukaku came on, Jorginho and Kante, and then Kovacic who comes on for Kante, they're they're instantly ten yards further up the pitch, and so it just felt like. Chelsea were able to impose their own game on Villa a bit more with Lukaku on the pitch, whereas in the first half, it was very much Villa kind of on the front foot and giving Chelsea a lot of problems. Yeah, I saw a good comment on the Guardian's match report that, describing that run into the box from Romelu Lukaku as uh, watching a running back go for a touchdown, which maybe maybe Taylor you'd appreciate that uh, <laughs> as well. The, the power and like that straight line pace, it was quite exciting watching him make that run. Taylor, what, what are your thoughts on Lukaku? Maybe even uh, your thoughts on the player he replaced as a centre forward in this game. Yeah, I, I I agree with Graham. It's it's a little bit of a confusing one again because. There is that one touch for Pulisic in the final third, and you could easily make the argument that he's not involved, he doesn't do what he needs to do as a number nine. But if he's playing as a false nine, this is where I get confused, because so much of what Chelsea were trying to do seemed like they were still trying to attack as though it were Lukaku starting, or as though they knew Lukaku would be coming on. So there are still balls sort of into the half spaces or into the channels that are intended for that sort of aggressive attacking run. But Pulisic, it felt like, had been briefed to drop in and create overloads in the center of the pitch and create space for other players to run into. And so oftentimes I would see him sort of checking to as a midfielder was hitting a one-time ball like through the lines in behind. And there seemed to be this disconnect in what they were trying to do, how they were trying to attack. And yeah, it's definitely the case then that when you put in Lukaku, who is going to do a much better job at battling those center backs. I equate it with like a boxer fighting a flyweight and being like, I'm the best boxer in the world, and then fighting a heavyweight immediately after, and it being a slight difference in the way that one plays out. I think Lukaku, this game really 
benefited him or suited his skill set and how he wants to play and how he can play uh, when kind of given the confidence to go out and attack that defense. And I think Pulisic looked way better when he was moved out onto the wing, and I think that is where he he fits best for Chelsea. The problem is just that they have so many other players who can play there and so few, relatively few players who can do what Lukaku was trying to do in this game and what he did successfully. So I think I was confused by the overall approach to having Pulisic central, but then having him play as a false nine, but still playing balls in as though he were a conventional number nine versus the kind of adjustments that were made as the game went on. And I think Tuchel gets it right. Tuchel's still very angry about some things when it comes to the way the Premier League is operating, but maybe Mm -hmm. less angry when it comes to how his team ended up getting the result. Graham, your thoughts on Pulisic in this game? Uh, it's not mm-hmm. as if this is the first time they've tried this experiment of starting him through the middle uh, up front. We did it against uh, Wolves as well, where it seems it's a little bit maybe physically mismatched for that kind of position, but obviously he can do, he can do that thing where he drops a little deeper, uh, as Taylor was mentioning. But what are your thoughts on him? And you know, if, we get, if we're going to get that jersey up to $2,500 on that Porn Stars <laughs> TV show, are we going to need more from him? I have been seeing a lot of negative comments about him online. Yeah, I, w- I was going to make a reference to the LeBron James of soccer there, but you, you beat me to it. Um, yeah, I I, f- I feel like Chelsea don't know what they want from Christian Pulisic. And I, I, as an outsider, obviously I don't have a horse in the race here. I'm not a USMNT fan. I'm not a Chelsea fan, so I just call it as I see it. I, I would be a little bit worried for his Chelsea career. Obviously, his his ability is is unquestioned. That you know, Chelsea paid a huge fee for him. That in itself is is, is a vote of confidence, a show of faith, and and what they thought he would become. But it just seems to me, you know, he starts this game as a centre forward, then he shifted to kind of a right wing back position. Neither of those positions are really his his favoured role. If you know, I always think his best position is on the left side of a front three. But at the moment, if Chelsea are playing a front three, I think uh, both Hudson Odoi and Timo Werner seem to be ahead of him in the pecking order. On the right side, I guess he can play on the right side. But again, it feels like Tuchel maybe prefers other options on 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 that right side as well. And and even when Chelsea are playing with a front three, they tend to play with quite a central front three. So it would be. Mount would maybe be the option on that right side, but he's tucking in centrally because the width is primarily coming from Rhys James. And in that right wing-back position, I think Rhys James is, is a better option than, than Christian Pulisic. So I don't know where he fits into this Chelsea first team, really. Um, I'm not even totally convinced at the moment he's a, he's maybe one of the first subs to come off the bench if, if Chelsea have everyone fit. And that's 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 a role that is not enough for someone like Christian Pulisic. And I do wonder whether we are reaching a a bit of a crossroads for him in his career. He's 23 now. He really needs to be playing regularly. You know, his ability commands that. And I've seen um, speculation linking him with, with Barcelona. I don't know how credible that is. I don't know how they would afford his wages and so on. But... I do wonder, you know, I'm interested in Taylor's thoughts on this as a USMNT fan. Like, if, if Pulisic is moving on from Chelsea, is that, a, is that a bad thing in your mind? Are you disappointed about that? Or are you quite pleased that maybe he gets some more game time somewhere else? It's an interesting question, because I think we, we so often see Americans, when they do get that big move, the move that they've been sort of angling for, it, it sometimes works. But it, it, like th- this reminds me of the Clint Dempsey thing with Spurs, where it's not like completely bad like he still scores goals he's still a relatively important part of that team but he is not the important part and he is one that can be kind of moved on that isn't gonna 
like demand to be started every single week, uh, either by his talent level or by actual demand, then I think Pulisic is in a similar position of like, it's been okay. It hasn't set the world alight. And there are other players who are maybe doing more of what Thomas Tuchel wants. I do think Thomas Tuchel likes Pulisic. I know there was reporting previously that they had had a falling out and they didn't get along. It seems like Tuchel is aware that this is a player that a lot of money has been put into and needs to try to get the best out of. And I think, Graham, to your point, that means that he's trying him in different places. And when that happens, when you have a player start here and then start there and then not start, but now he's starting on the other side, it becomes the, uh, I'll shoehorn in my Manchester United reference, the John O'Shea utility player sort of thing, the Mm jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And that is not what I think Chelsea need. I think they need sort of proven uh, like players at certain positions and they need they need depth behind them and so if it were Pulisic getting a move even like a a sort of lateral or or probably a a downward move but then that means he's starting in in his more natural position and starting regularly and maybe contributing goals and assists more often I think that benefits him certainly but I think from a career perspective I I fully expect him to kind of want to fight for a spot at Chelsea for as long as he possibly can because it is such a big club with such a, a, a big reputation, at least here in the U.S., that I think for him to get a move away, like I saw a report today that Genoa were interested in him. They have American owners. I think they're managed by Shevchenko now. I might have that wrong, but there was speculation yeah. that he could go there. And that would make sense in terms of he would be the name. He would be the man, the star player. He would be on the first name on the team sheet. But simultaneously, is that what he wants at this point in his career? I, I guess he is the only one that can answer that. But I would be sad if he left Chelsea, certainly in January, maybe even in this summer, because I think there's still opportunities there. And I think if he finds the right situation in the right moment, I think he can be that important player for them. Uh, but I don't think him playing as a false nine and then having Lukaku come on and do big things does anything to help his confidence or standing with the fans. The, the thing that, that worries me about Pulisic at Chelsea is thinking about if he was to be sold or loaned out or whatever would Chelsea have to replace him my answer to that it would be no and that when you have when the answer is no to that question and you're a squad player I think that that's when you're in a dangerous position because Chelsea may you know Chelsea may want to sign a top class center back in the summer um, with Thiago Silva out of contract I think they actually they've got three center backs out of contract at the end of the season they might want to raise some funds and Pulisic is the, maybe at the top of the list that they could get players that they could get rid of and not really feel that impact but still get a big fee for him and that would that would worry me if that was Christian Pulisic isn't that mm. to to go back on that for a moment though isn't that more a product of Chelsea's recruitment than anything else because that's how I see it is that when they go out and sign five wide attacking players when they already have Mason Mountain, Callum Hudson-Odoi in there, you're going to have a lot of options for two mm-hmm. places, basically. And this is the thing we've talked about with Chelsea for a couple seasons now. And and so to me, like short of like like Mason Mount, like put it this way, Mason Mount, if they sold Mason Mount in January or this summer, do they have to go out and sign a replacement for him? Same thing for Callum Hudson-Odoi. I feel like they have the depth there that I'm not sure they need to replace anybody automatically. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think it... It's not really meant as a as a comment on Pulisic because I think he is uh, potentially one of the best players in the Premier League. When you mentioned Genoa there, I I think he's a, above that level. Um, if I, I if he was moving on, I would I would suggest he should be looking higher than that. But yeah, I just I just think that Chelsea squad is is bloated at the moment, and he is maybe the one being squeezed out in those attacking positions at the moment. Despite the fact I think he's a he's a fantastic player. Graham. Uh, hates America. Got it. Cool. Wrote that down. Cool. Just wanted that one noted for posterity. 
Uh, Christian, if you are listening, uh, if you're going to go to general, just remember nothing works in Italy and the driving's really bad. Signed, an expat who lives in Italy. Anyway, um, <laughs> have we got a note about um, Aston Villa at all, Graham? Did we learn anything about them here without their manager, Stephen Gerrard, on the sidelines in this one? I learned that Tara Mings maybe should face the direction of play when a header's <laughs> coming in and Romelu Lukaku's challenging for it. Uh, but otherwise, what did we make of it? Yeah, that that was one of my notes as well. Was Tyron Mings didn't have the the best of games, and actually he he does have a a track record of doing that. Mings he has obviously a, a big physical presence as a cent- central defender, and you want him maybe to attack things a little bit more than he does. Sometimes he is quite passive, with uh, particularly with deliveries coming into the box, and we certainly saw that with the way he defended Lukaku's uh, header for for the second goal. However, I do have some sympathy because that would a hundred percent have been my action if I had to defend uh, Romel Lukaku. <laughs> running at me attacking across but generally looking at the the Aston Villa performance as a whole I don't think we did really learn all that much um about them I think it's a, a good sign that even with Gerard not there obviously he's self-isolating after um testing positive for COVID his coaching staff Gary McCarthy and Michael Beale were still on the sidelines and I, I think you you saw a performance that was very similar to what they have produced previously under Gerard that is probably a good sign that that shows that the the structure is already embedded in the minds of the players and mm. um, they play very narrowly with kind of uh, some attacking midfielders supporting the, the the central strikers which they started with two in this game with with Watkins and Ings kind of bursting in behind and then the width coming from the fullbacks obviously targets cross contributed to the goal and then Matty Cash on the other side as well so I, I think we are definitely seeing Stevie G's stamp on this team and he has definitely improved them since coming into that club I think. I did enjoy seeing Gary McAllister warming up Graham with the team on the field with, with his boots on that was I got my, my 90s nostalgia was tingling there of course a man who knows a thing or two about missing penalties against England doesn't it Graham oh uh, we, no we're not going there I mean really an Englishman wants to talk about missing penalties that is uh something <laughs> but it, does uh does Guy McAllister you're saying he's wearing his boots what I mean surely they weren't multicolored or I mean Copa Mundials or Puma Kings surely was oh. the way he goes I believe they were kings. They were they were jet black, whatever they were, Graham. I can assure you right, of that. Okay. And what yeah, was talking yeah. about penalties, by the way, before we leave this game, uh, Jorginho, um, with, with a couple here, uh, returning to the domain of scoring penalties. He's now scored nine goals in all competitions this season. He's a club top scorer. He was the league top scorer for Chelsea last year with seven goals. I mean, for a team who've got the attacking weapons they do, it's quite amusing that he's still, still topping the scoring charts, Graham. Yeah, and and the hill that I will die on with Jorginho is that he is... I I realise this is ridiculous given all the numbers, but I just never feel comfortable with him taking a penalty. I'm not convinced he's very good at taking penalties, but clearly (laughs) the numbers speak for themselves, so uh, it feels like I'm maybe dying on this hill alone. Graham, how much (laughs) of that is influenced by the Man City penalties? Because Riyad Mahrez steps up and bangs that thing top corner, then Raheem Sterling steps up and hits it to the exact same spot, and I I feel like there is something with, like, when you are hitting it inch perfect into the top corner with power... When Jorginho goes to like the hop and the placement, even if he is like hitting it every single time and doing it perfectly, there's something just so much more impressive about smashing it in top corner, yeah. but not feeling like it was just I'm putting my head down and hitting it as hard as I can. That felt like Riyad Mahrez knowing exactly where he was putting it and then putting power behind it. 
And and the thing about a lot of Jorginho's penalties are a lot of them do seem to be quite close to the keeper. Like kind of like, oh, right, yep, oh, he's just, he squeezed that one in. <laughs> like most of them seem to be like that. And uh, yeah, it's a hill that I'll die on that he's not a particularly good penalty taker, but his numbers are uh, are pretty good. They are indeed. As are Chelsea's uh, in third place, uh, joint on points with Liverpool at the moment. Uh, when we come back after this break, we'll take a look at the rest of the Premier League action from Boxing Day back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Uh, Taylor Rockwell, how about we talk a little bit about Norwich, mm-hmm. uh, who lost 5-0 <laughs> to Arsenal uh, on Boxing Day. NBC showing a score at the end of the game as 4-0, being a bit too generous to Norwich, I noticed on their graphics. Maybe they just don't like Emil Smith-Rowe. We'll never know. Uh, what did you make of this one, <laughs> Taylor? It's uh, They're, they're, they're a, a curious team of Norwich, are they not? Uh, yeah, from the American perspective, uh, Josh Sargent was definitely around. So that's uh, the extent of my American coverage on that one. Norwich surprised me for a few different points. <laughs> the first one being, at one point, there was I haven't watched a ton of them, at least not of their defense. And there was a familiar face that I was like, who is that guy? I recognize him. And then I realized it was Ozan Kabak. And I am confused because this is the guy that when he goes from Schalke to Liverpool, it felt like, oh, he's this really young center back. This is a really bad Schalke team, but he's going to go to Liverpool and he is going to be the kind of lock in that defense that they so desperately needed. And instead, he is sent right back to Schalke and then loaned out to Norwich. And now his, I think, market value has dropped by about $12 million since uh, those two (laughs) moves occurred. But I don't understand why his career has been worst team, best team, worst team. Like, maybe find somebody in the middle, Ozan, and see how that goes. And similarly, when it comes to confusing figures for Norwich, you guys remember Todd Cantwell? Remember that guy? Remember how good he was going to be and how everybody wanted him? And now he cannot get into this team because this is the second time in two seasons that a manager has publicly questioned his sort of commitment to the team, his enthusiasm for the work that's required. He, I think, refused to play under Daniel Farca, was training with the U23s. Some reports of injury factoring into that one, but it does seem like there was a personality conflict. Dean Smith puts him back in the lineup. He looks very rusty. He is substituted out, and now it seems like he will maybe not be called in again. And it's just so strange because there's Todd Cantwell, there's Emmy Buendia, who was such an important player that they sold after at the end of last season, uh, now doing things for Villa, and he's not really replaced. Norwich went about this summer signing a lot of like $10 million, $10 million $12 million, I'm um, going off transfer market, which lists everything in dollars, uh, so like players, but not 
the kind of caliber you need maybe to make sure that you're going to be up in that top flight. It feels like you should stick with what got you there and then reinforce in one or two areas with like a significant outlay. And so I end up just being even more confused by this Norwich team, which has Ozan Kabak, who was going to be this next great center back and then wasn't. They have Todd Cantwell, who's going to be this next great like, Premier League playmaker and currently is not. They got rid of another very good player for them and now they find themselves... Uh, very likely to go back down. And yet, with the way Norwich tend to go, it feels like also very likely to come right back up and then go right <laughs> back down again. Taylor, can I make a very rude suggestion about yes. Norwich? And I apologize to the Norwich fans listening. You know, this is a COVID-afflicted season. Mm-hmm. What if we just relegate Norwich right now, give everyone the points they were going to play with them, <laughs> give them a payoff for their losses, for their gate receipts, for their for their economic losses, give everyone an extra break in the second half of the season. Discuss. <laughs> well, I still, I still remain confused. Why, while we're on that subject, like we we don't have a summer World Cup this year, so there seems to be this rush to finish the season so that everyone gets a nice like several month break. I know we'll still have World Cup qualifying filling that summer cycle uh, because everything's been pushed back, but it does feel like we could also have a little bit more flexibility with the way these games are being played. But short mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, I mean, Norwich and maybe also Newcastle. Let's put Newcastle in there. I'm sure their new ownership would love that <laughs> if we just auto-relegated them right now. <laughs> I think they would. The, uh, the the rush to finish to, to have a, a summer off reminds me of the future armor with Beck, where he's like, come on, Ben, we've got to get to the concert to make the people wait for it to start. Yeah, right? It's, it's, it's my final line, favorite line from Spinal Tap. We'd love to stay in chat, <laughs> but we got to go sit down in the lobby and wait for our limo to arrive. It's like, it's just always like, just mo- qu- like quickly rushing to get to the next thing where you will then be waiting for an indeterminate amount of time. Graham, how about Arsenal in this one? Um, highlight of the game, surely Granit Xhaka receiving a crossfield pass on his back. That's how little pressure he had on him from this Norwich team that he could afford to, to do fancy damn tricks like that, which was very amusing. But uh, what did you make of Arsenal here, who uh, uh, won 5-0 here? They've got Man City next weekend, so they'll lose 5-0 next weekend. It's out. <laughs> yeah, that, that is pretty much the, the pattern of their season so far. But going on their recent performances, yes, Arsenal are playing pretty well right now. They've scored four or more goals in their last three games and if they they keep playing like this i might even visit rwanda because they're uh, fun to watch at the moment and i'll do whatever they tell me uh, <laughs> to do <laughs> uh my the player that i was most impressed with in this game was was uh, martin odegaard who i can't believe anyone ever doubted he would be good enough for arsenal i caught martin keown um it was either last week or the week before saying something like he didn't want Arsenal to spend £35 million on him. And I, I just can't believe that was ever a view that anyone held. Admittedly, I had the benefit of watching him in Spain for Real Sociedad, where he was a, he was a superstar. He was genuinely a player of the season uh, can, candidate in La Liga, maybe, what was it, not, not last season, but the season before when he was on loan there. And he's exactly what Arsenal needed. And he's really starting to, now that he's a bit more comfortable and that team is getting some consistency not just in terms of their performances but just the players that are on the pitch around him he is he's really coming to the fore and everything Arsenal did well in this match I felt like flowed through him he drops deep a lot he snaps back into position really quickly which is what I think um, Arteta likes over someone like Mesut Ozil who, who obviously didn't do that he's very quick to get back into into his position but that also puts him into into position to thread these these passes from deep which we saw a number of times in this match in particular uh, well the one that stood out in my mind because it was a Scott who scored it um, the, the pass through to Kieran Tierney and he finishes off the inside of the post and he did that a number of times and and it just feels like I honestly think 
Odegaard could be one of the the best players in the Premier League pretty quickly. It feels like that that's the trajectory that he's on, and it feels like he is the creative force that this Arsenal team. Cast your mind back to last season where Arsenal were having real troubles around about this time of the season, and it was creativity problems that they were having. They weren't creating enough. Their defence was a bit better, but they were they were lacking in the final third. And Odegaard and players like Smithrow and Saka, whose numbers are also way up this season, that's where the the real progress in this Arsenal team can be can be found at the moment. I agree with Graham that I think Martin Odegaard has been such an exciting and fun player to watch, but important player for them as well. And I and I think it's also interesting that it's a player who like leaves Real Madrid and there's always this like, all right, should Madrid have let him go? Like have they made a mistake? Did Arsenal get lucky? And I think it's one of those strange scenarios where like it worked out well for both. Because I don't think the way Odegaard plays the position he is best at, I don't think that fits with the way Madrid like their midfield three to line up. So I think it makes a lot of sense for him to go to Arsenal. And and I w- I'm not surprised to see him have the s- success he has. Graham, I have a very like half-baked idea I want to run by you. Mm-hmm. And I want you to give me, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being not buying at all, 10 being like, yep, that makes a ton of sense, I'm buying it completely. When it comes to the hesitation some Arsenal fans or former players feel about uh, somebody like Odegaard coming in. Is there any like logic to the idea that it's because they've been slightly burned by big like cast-offs from big clubs in La Liga before? Because I think of Alexis Sanchez, sort of surplus yeah. requirement at Barcelona. He comes in and has a huge impact for Arsenal, but then the way he leaves, the sort of situation surrounding him is a negative. And obviously Mesut Ozil, surplus requirement at Real Madrid, moves to Arsenal and it's this big coup, it's going to go really well, and it kind of does, but then very much doesn't. And I wonder if there's just this sort of twice-burned, not-going-to-let-it-happen-again, I forget what the actual phrasing is, something about being bitten in there as well. But I wonder if maybe that is part of the sort of hesitation for people to embrace another Real Madrid-La Liga cast-off. I turn to you, Graham, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much are you buying that? I'll, I'll go for a solid 8. Wow, all right. I think there's definitely some logic in that, particularly with... With uh, with Ozil and obviously the way that that ended, um, with Arsenal kind of just shipping him off to wherever they wherever they could, and and I think if you had offered, you know, Odegaard is a fantastic player, but at times his and he is a very energetic player. He does cover a lot of ground, but at times there is almost a a, a languid quality to the way that he mm-hmm. plays as well, and that is quite similar to Ozil. And I think if you'd offered Arsenal fans a choice between someone like James Madison, who is maybe a bit more traditionally English in the way you can always see the, the kind of the, the effort and a bit more obvious skill and he dribbles past a player and, and he maybe gets fans out of their seat in a more obvious way, in a more maybe English way, I guess. If you'd offered them a choice between him or Odegaard, a lot of them probably would have taken James Madison because of the feeling that Arsenal need a little bit more grit and a little bit more fight and so on, whereas Odegaard, in my opinion, is maybe three times the player that James Madison is. And I'm I'm just really pleased that he is starting to, to come to the fore. He doesn't, you know, he's not a big personality like someone like James Madison is, but his, his, his play on the pitch is incredible. And I'm pleased that Arsenal fans are now starting to see that. If they had tried to get, uh, to get Madison before Leicester got him, do you know who they would have been buying him from? Uh, that would be Norwich. Norwich. Get it together, Norwich. <laughs> Get it together. <laughs> uh, West Ham 2, Southampton 3. Southampton were turning around here after being winless in the six games. West Ham may be regressing to the mean little bit here. The top four challenge taking a bit of a beating lately. Could it be, Graham, that a centre-back pairing of Issa Diop and Craig Dawson isn't <laughs> Champions League material? <laughs> 
yeah, you, you might be onto something there. As as you say, they're not, they're they're now without a win in their last um, five matches in all competitions, and seven points off the top four in the table. And as you suggested, I just wonder if we're starting to see the limitations of their squads at the moment, and not just in the central defensive positions. But you mentioned in your season preview, you had doubts over Michael Antonio. I when he's fit and firing, he's he's perfect for the system. But they don't really have an option behind him. Obviously, he's struggling for fitness at the moment. Nikola uh, Vlasic starts this match, but he only lasts until half time. That's how unhappy Moyes was with his performance. He brings on Antonio, who does score, but it it does feel like maybe their squad is being stretched at the moment. And I I would be surprised if they do if they finish in that top four now. I just think there are stronger squads in the Premier League this season. Is that a shame, Taylor, as a, as a former... Are you a former David Moyes fan, a current David Moyes fan? I don't know where you stand on him. I, I honestly have no opinion on David Moyes. <laughs> like, other than I always go back to him not understanding the kind of size of the club when he moved to Man, Man United. But it does feel like West Ham, a, a good, cl- good club for him, a good spot for him. But with their recent run of form of, I think, one draw, four losses in their last five games, that is not the run you'd like to be on. Graham, you said you don't expect them to be in the top four. I think that is a safe thing to say. Do you have concerns about this slide continuing? Not that they would ever be like into the relegation zone. I think they are comfortably out of that one. But like, do, do you have any concerns about, in the same way that you weren't sure about Brendan Rodgers at the end of the season, do you have any doubts about uh, David Moyes still being at West Ham at the end of the season? No, not, not really. I, I do think they will probably consolidate a position in the pff, where I think they'll finish. I think they'll certainly finish in the top eight, and that, that probably still represents some form of success for, for, for a club like West Ham at this point. I, I thought it was quite notable after the, after the match, uh, Antonio said he, he thinks uh, West Ham are suffering from some mental fatigue. He says they've gone a bit stale, and I think that does probably nail it. Um, that there is There is something in how West Ham are not doing the basics that well at the moment, which is, that isn't something you usually associate with them under Moyes. So that is maybe the most concerning thing for them right now you know that they, they were in this match in particular they were they were weak from set pieces there was a lot of space for Southampton to to run into the midfield two of uh, Suchek and Rice they, they were they were kind of ragdolled a bit to an extent that I haven't really seen from them this season and, and I can't imagine Moyes was very pleased with, with with this performance as a whole so I think if that continues then yes that would that would be concerning to me but I think they've actually got quite a kind of kind run of fixture I can't off the top of my head remember what they were but I did check this before we started recording I think they do have some favorable fixtures over the next few weeks so that could see them uh, pick up again Graham if Chelsea wanted to just throw a wrench into things and really trip up their their rivals for top four um, if they if Chelsea were to loan out one of the many attackers that we have talked about previously with the kind of provision that they not be able to play against their parent club so the player can't play against Chelsea but could play against everybody else. Which attacker that seems relatively surplus to requirement at Chelsea for Thomas Tuchel do you think would have the biggest impact at West Ham? So would it be Zayek? Would it be Pulisic? Ooh. Could it be Kai Havertz? Who makes the difference for West Ham if they were to go on loan from Chelsea? Um, I mean, I feel like I'm getting led down the garden path to uh, a certain American international. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I feel like Pulisic really? is the answer. I mean, Havertz, I think Havertz is the best player of those yeah. players that you did mention, but Chelsea aren't letting him leave, I don't think. So, yeah, Pulisic to West Ham on loan, that wouldn't be the, the worst option for West Ham um, or for Pulisic, I don't, I don't think. All right, there Might we are. I, I, was, I wasn't trying to lead Graham anywhere. Graham, you are free to say what you want, but you did make the correct decision. <laughs> Pulisic is always the answer. 
<laughs> he is indeed. Elsewhere in London, Tottenham 3, Crystal Palace nil. Palace, as we mentioned, requested this game called off um, after Patrick Vieira, their manager, was uh, absent with COVID. Uh, they were worried, apparently, that Vieira had infected others on the team and he did, uh, the team didn't stay in a hotel the night before. They stayed uh, at home the night before instead. Uh, they appeared to be missing around seven senior players, did Crystal Palace. Uh, they went down to 10 men as well with Wilf Zaha getting a red card in this one as well uh graham what did you make of uh conte's tottenham here chugging along nicely they are indeed um this was another impressive performance and actually a question for you guys out of the two north london clubs obviously we're heading into 2022 and 2021 has been a rough time for both arsenal and spurs but it now seems like both of them are on an upward trajectory Mm. of the two arsenal or spurs which team is going to have a better 2022? Because it seems like they, they both could have good years. So My guess says Tottenham. Arsenal right now at fourth place, six points ahead of Tottenham in fifth. I'm, what did your gut say, Ryan? My, my gut says Tottenham with this pace yeah. under Antonio Conte, it feels like they are a bit of a steam train right now. Yeah, I agree. I, I think long term, I think Arsenal are in a stronger position. I think short term, it's Spurs because Antonio Conte has... That personality, that fiery disposition to like engineer the immediate response, the immediate turnaround. But I think the way things have gone for Arsenal under Arteta, especially with like Obama Yang and and him sort of being stripped of the captaincy, not involved in the team, that hasn't blown up in his face. If anything, it's made them better. I think we're seeing the consistency under Arteta improve and become much more stable and I think Arsenal will continue to improve from here but I think Spurs we've just seen this dramatic sort of willingness to fight under Antonio Conte I keep going back to wondering what it is that he does like when he comes into training I'm assuming no ketchup wait go ahead Graham no, no tomato ketchup. I mean, that's the secret. That's, that's part of it, right? But like, I, I really w- I would love to hear more to read more about <laughs> what it is. I'm assuming he has this blueprint that it's just like, we're not doing this, we're doing this. None of that, we're doing that. This is what training looks like. And it seems to have this big impact. It reminds me of what Mourinho, I think, used to have when he came in. That it was just like, it's not that hard. We're going to do the simple things well. We're going to make training simple. We're going to get the results. And it seems like Spurs have responded to that. And I think we'll continue to do so. So I think maybe for the rest of this season... I would say Tottenham looking very exciting and capable of doing big things. But I think over the next maybe 18 months, I say Arsenal are in a stronger position to challenge more consistently for that top four or even maybe take it up to that next level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair call. And I I think in the short term, it's incredible how Conte has has managed to get so much more out of these Spurs players. I mean, I I think I saw a statistic in the 10 matches before Conte... Spurs were, were they 20th? Were they last in the league for distance covered? Wow. They were certainly down the, the bottom. And I think now they are first for, for distance covered, which you know is, is such a remarkable turnaround. And the number of players who now seem to have absorbed his ideas, and one player who certainly stands out for me in that regard is, is Lucas Moura, mm-hmm. who was the star man for Spurs in this, in this win on Box Day over Palace. He had a hand in uh, all three goals. So he had one goal and two assists. And, and this isn't an isolated case either he's become a key figure for Spurs under Conte um he has I'm trying to look through my stats here so he was directly involved in more goals three in this single match than his than his first 14 Premier League appearances of the season where he was involved in two goals he scored three goals and assisted two in his last four outings and he's got four goals and four assists in nine games under Conte and I just think you know Conte likes speedy direct players who offer a lot of vertical movement and that's what Moira gives Spurs 
Uh, and I think when Conte was appointed, we were fascinated to see which players would thrive under him. And he certainly de- seems to be one of those players. And that relationship as well with Emerson Royale down the right side, because that was another question with Conte, was who's going to be the wing back or the wing backs in this system who really thrive. And he really seems to be giving Spurs uh, an outlet on that right side. He provides the cross for uh, Lucas Moura's uh, goal in this match. And yeah, I think the, the signs are very encouraging for Spurs at the moment. They are indeed. One more match from this match day to take a quick look at uh, Brighton against Brentford. Uh, Brighton getting a 2-0 win in this one. Taylor, it seemed like at the start of the season, and rightly so, we were very excited about Brentford and Thomas Frank and what he was doing there. Are we still excited? I would say less so. I think I appreciated him coming out and saying, we definitely need the five subs rule, because I I was following that this weekend, the debate around it, Thomas Tuchel wanting it to be uh, voted on immediately and put back in place, especially since England doesn't have the winter break. Alan Shearer then talking about how that is a disservice to the smaller clubs who don't have the depth, who don't have the financial resources resources to benefit from that fifth substitution. And then Brentford coming out and saying, no, we definitely need five subs. Please make that happen. So at least they've given us that, if not the electrifying season that maybe we had hoped for yeah graham your thoughts on brentford yeah it's difficult to watch brentford at the moment and not think of sheffield united and it's not just because of the similar kits yeah (laughs) um just like brentford you know sheffield united they burst into the premier league playing a slightly different type of football and then over time opponents started to figure them out and, and i think you know, Sheffield United and Brentford, they, they maybe don't have the squad depth to adapt in, in any way. And then they, you know, Sheffield United started to sink. And I think Brentford will be safe this season. I think they've got enough to, to avoid relegation, maybe quite comfortably as well. But they've got two wins in their last, um, what was it, eight Premier League matches. Mm. And I think if Frank is going to invo- evolve this team, he might have to start doing it now. I don't think he can kind of wait any longer. And that might be a difficulty for a team with, you know, I think we often forget that Brentford, in terms of their resources, are a disadvantage to pretty much the rest of the Premier League. They're in the Premier League because of the shrewdness and the smartness of their their scouting and recruitment and coaching. But that is a, that's a difficult thing to keep up and it means that they can't really have any lapses. So I, I think they do have some challenges, but um, given their track record um, under the, the ownership that they have, it wouldn't surprise me if they... Uh, if they succeed in kind of evolving it as Sheffield United failed to do. A mm. uh, good win for Brighton. This was too, uh, their first win in 12. Uh, Trossard and Morpé with the goals. Trossard's mm-hmm. volley from like that overhead through ball. Oh, yeah, it was good. Wonderful. Both really good goals, actually. But that Trossard one, listener, uh, look it up if you haven't seen it already. Uh, very finally, the section will probably edit out, but we'll do it just to appease Graham. <laughs> uh, Scotland. Scotland also has a full uh, Boxing Day schedule. Uh, yep. Celtic and Rangers won. What else, Graham? <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunately, the, the big headline on Boxing Day, as I mentioned earlier, was that the, the matches were back behind closed doors due to the, the spike in COVID cases. And of all the days to happen, bo- happen, Boxing Day felt particularly cruel, given how, as I've mentioned, you know, this day is always about family and friends at matches. But anyway, these are the times that we live in. So as you say, there were wins for Celtic over St. Johnson and Rangers over St. Mirren. Six points between the, the two Glasgow rivals now. However, we're not getting the traditional New Year's Day old firm match because Scottish football has now gone into cold storage for three weeks due to the pandemic. So the season picks up again on January 17. 
And there's a lot of anticipation ahead of that match because Rangers are under new management. Celtic are seemingly improving under Postacoglu. So that's going to be a, a, a big match that I'm sure we'll talk about on the podcast when it does eventually happen. There was also a win for, I'll keep this short, but a win for Hibernian under their new manager, Sean Maloney. That's maybe a, a name that listeners will be familiar with. He is their new manager. 3-1 win for them over Dundee United and then Edinburgh Rivals Hearts also uh, claimed three points against Ross County and then Motherwell beat Livingston at home and Aberdeen beat Dundee with Christian Ramirez registering an assist and a 2-1 win for Aberdeen. He's actually had a very strong first half of the season and I do wonder, Taylor, is Christian Ramirez anywhere on Greg Berhalter's radar at the moment? Because I know he does have caps, doesn't he, for the USMNT, but he he has been really pretty impressive for Aberdeen in the first half of the season. Aberdeen fans absolutely love him and I do wonder if maybe USMNT fans are maybe aware of what he's doing over here? Uh, there is almost no chance that they are. Uh, speaking on behalf of all of America. <laughs> no, I think like lower level, like lower, lower level, lower tier SBL teams maybe don't get the coverage that you might expect, especially no, of course given not. I've said things like SPL just now, which I know probably was like chalk on the chalkboard for Graham. Uh, I think there's an argument to be made that with the lack of sort of consistent number nines for the U.S. men's national team, that Berhalter should be looking uh, anywhere and everywhere. I would venture to guess that his approach right now is I sort of have my idea of who my top three to top six players would be, and I want to see how they continue to develop in my system. That said, he does tend to use his camps and use World Cup qualifiers as bringing in a couple extra names here and there. Oftentimes not the names that American fans would like to see, but we may get that opportunity if Christian Ramirez continues to do things well in Scotland, continues to score goals and get assists and be that sort of pivotal player in that number nine role, that then he could then maybe transition to the U.S. again. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate it because I'm not really sold by any of the options there. So anybody who can come in and do the job mm. uh, is fine with me. And we've seen that in the past with the U.S., that sort of a player that catches fire in the right moment, finds form in the right situation, can be that late addition. A player who's only played maybe one game for the U.S. in the last year or two can somehow find themselves on the World Cup roster if things sort of align the right way. So that could be Christian Ramirez, but right now it seems unlikely because he hasn't been getting those looks or even mentions of those looks from Greg Berhalter so far. Mm. Yeah. No, that, that, obviously I'm aware that you know Aberdeen are not playing at the highest level, but he is... He's doing really well, and he is—he's a—he's a true number nine. Which, given what uh, you know, you and Joe in particular have said, maybe that's a oh, position that let me, the U.S. don't have that many options. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I personally think he'd be worth. Let it. me be really clear. What I'm saying is, like, like Greg Berhalter has called up people from the French second division. Like, it's—it's it's not about the the quality of the team. It's more when I, when I'm talking about that, I'm coming from the American fan perspective. In that, I don't know how many American fans are tuning in to the Scottish mm. Premiership to watch Aberdeen play. Uh, maybe more of them should be, but I, that's what I mean more so. No, I think Berhalter has done a pretty good job of keeping his scouts, keeping in contact with eligible players around the world. So I don't think it's even the quality of the league or the quality of the team that would prohibit him from getting called in, more so a lack of familiarity with Berhalter and Berhalter with him. I'm speaking more of fans, I think, watch... Certain leagues and certain leagues more than others. The Dutch league seems to get more coverage from American fans than the Scottish league. That, and that's that's probably fair to us. That's a better league. <laughs> Graham, do you think Ramirez needs to send a pair of AJs to Berhalter? Maybe swing things. What do you think? Yeah, that that would probably get him in his uh, in his good books. <laughs> a little bit of bribery did nobody any harm, uh, gents. I think that just about rounds up Boxing Day weekend review. Thank you so much, Taylor Rockwell, for your wonderful contributions. Right back at you, my friend. Graham Rutherford, a pleasure as always, good sir. 
Thank you, Rain. Listener, thank you so much. We'll be back soon with another one on the feed. But for now, bye! Bye!